Psych Comedy. I'm Nathan Cassidy, stand-up comedian and Bachelor of Science in Psychology, a subject I've been studying for 25 years and a quarter of a century of exploring the fascinating way our minds work on and off stage, alongside being stand-up for the last 10 years, has led me here today discussing the psychology of comedy with today's very special guest, writer of the book of this very name, The Psychology of Comedy. The plagiarism suit is in the post. Neil, honorary professor at Regent's University in London, Professor Neil Martin. Neil, hello. Hello, hello, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. Stuff with plagiarism and potential lawsuits. And <laughs> now I'm a bit panicky. So thanks for the interview, and I will see you later. <laughs> Bye. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, thank you for the invitation. Yes, I'm here in a lovely navy suit, feeling quite relaxed in a typical psychotherapeutic milieu on a very comfortable sofa and um, just waiting to, to hear what you're going to throw at me. <laughs> and hopefully I can throw some interesting answers back at you. Good. So your background to oh. writing this book, your, your, your childhood is mentioned in the book. Um, and your childhood, I think, was the childhood of many comedians, actually. Certainly me, collecting Ooh. comedy records and tapes, submitting jokes. Could you tell us a little bit about comedy in your childhood and what set you off on this road? I, I mean, I think you're right. I think if you've got an interest in comedy uh, and you become a comedian, or if you've got a real pathological interest in comedy, you know, somebody who's, you know, ferociously into who wrote what and sort of recording stuff. I think there are certain tropes, certain leitmotifs, ostinata, that I think we all share, you know, that reading comics and reading books and also recording stuff from television and radio. And I think we all share that. And I think then you've got the individual features that sort of mark out, you know, your own personal history um, of enjoyment of comedy. And I suppose for me, Apart from all that, it was my mum who had just had a, you know, ferociously filthy sense of humour. And I remember we used to record ourselves, you know, doing like a couple of comedy sessions and I would literally be doubled up, um, you know, thoracically, abdominally aching because of, of the laughter, you know, that she and her friends were oh, um, wow. were engaged in. That's such a great thing. Yeah, and it was, it was she was the one really, I suppose, that got me into comedy properly because... Um, she grew up reading comics and so she introduced me to comics and I used to recall things like Steve Wright in the afternoon and uh, Bernard Matthews round midnight uh, <laughs> and then I used to record stuff off television on audio cassette at the time and then yeah, nice. from that I started writing something called Neil's News when I was in primary school and that was it and then after that you know you sort of segue into sort of slightly more mature comedy I think don't you mm. and I, I, I was at the um, the BFI London Film Festival a couple of weeks ago, and Jesse Armstrong was doing an interview with uh, Nish Kumar. He was oh. talking about Succession, because he was premiered at the, the LFF. And he was saying that for his generation, and we're sort of roughly the same age, his Monty Python was not the nine o'clock news. Yep. And I think, for me, that is, I think, the comedy show more than any other that, um, I suppose, marked out my my. my my beginning, my blooming of my, uh, if you like, my, my comedy uh, consciousness, um, seeing as I'm sitting on a couch here, being all psychotherapeutic, <laughs> my comedy consciousness, and there's, the album Kind of Lingers in particular mm -hmm. um, stood out because that, that was the point at which I began to notice who wrote what and became obsessed with who wrote this magnificent comedy that made you literally in awe of it. Oh. And we know the names now, you know, um, Jeff Posner and um, uh, Richard Curtis and you know, Stephen Fry and all those names. But also yeah. names like Tony Sarchett and Andrea Solomons. 
Bob Sinfield, you know, James Hendry, you know, these ones who are comedy titans. If you know your comedy history, these are people who wrote a lot of comedy back in the, the 80s and the, the 90s. Oh. And it's one of those albums where, and this is where the Monty Python link, I think, becomes uh, salient, is there are sketches on there I can now repeat verbatim oh. because they're so brilliant. What's fascinating, and there are many fascinating things about that answer in terms of what started you off on your comedy journey, is I've spoken to, what, 200 comedians. Your passion for comedy it comes across probably far more than anyone else I've ever talked to. <laughs> um, your, your love of comedy, I don't think anybody has spoken like that, because I do ask, you know, kind of what influences you. And your passion and love for comedy certainly comes out there more than, I think, <laughs> anyone else. Maybe they were just being deliberately kind of, oh, I'm a comedian, so I can't, you know, be effusive in my praise for, you know, other comedians. But, and also your mom, you know, speaking about your mom being very Ooh. funny, when I talk to comedians about their families, it's always kind of maybe problems <laughs> or lack of love mm. with their, from, but from your mother, it was, there, there probably will be a theme in this discussion once or twice in terms of you have got, you have had the background that many comedians had, you know, which is things that you've said there about recording comedy. Mm. And I know you dabbled in a little bit of comedy and writing comedy and submitting stuff, but you've gone, into a, you've gone down a different route. Yeah. And I wonder whether there's, you know, things we can draw out in terms of why you've gone down this route Ooh. and are seemingly far <laughs> happier <laughs> and more passionate about comedy, whereas had you gone down the route of actually performing comedy, you'd have been sitting here going, I hate comedy, I hate all comedians, all television, including Not The Nine O'Clock News is rubbish. Um, <laughs> Maybe I think I'm excited because of all the caffeine that you've given me. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's great. It's great to hear you, that passion about I, comedy. I if I was talking about psychology, I'd be really miserable. It's serendipity and pragmatism, I think. Because, I mean, you know, you're right. You talked about the recording, the comedy and stuff. And the, the sixth form, um, my friend Charles Williams and I produced this thing, a magazine, a satirical magazine. We printed about 100 copies. Uh, they did sell out, uh, thankfully. Um, but as a consequence of which, we were suspended for a, a week. Um, the headmaster summoned us on a, on a Friday and he's threatened us with permanent suspension. I didn't know whether this meant expulsion or hanging. I was, I was too baffled to ask. Um, and yeah, we were suspended for um, a week. And oh, then wow. I, I said to... I had similar things at my school. Yeah, I, I, did, a, did, I, you? Did, I did a nativity. <laughs> I, where, oh, that's <laughs> not, this is not a good start. <laughs> so Christianity, me, yeah, I was kind of... I wasn't suspended, but I was threatened with if I ever did anything like that again. Yeah, we did a nativity where, uh, just from memory, God stood up <laughs> and had like an impregnation gun. From the audience, oh, yeah. I mean, aunt. you can understand why I was nearly suspended, but yeah. Well, you know, when we come to talk about comedians' personalities, I mean, both of these things actually tie into one of the personality traits that, um, you know, comedians show less of rather mm. than more of. The first cancellation in comedy, I <laughs> think this was, Neil. <laughs> it was a formative experience for me, yeah. Nathan. And There's a few yeah. things there. I mean, it's great to get your background there in, in comedy. And as I say, there will be, there will be things, I'm sure, of interesting you know the, the route you went down um, but also taking risks and cancellation and different types of humor that might get you into trouble that certainly has parallels today so we're going to touch upon that in a bit as well but um in in the book you talk at length about the psychology of a comedian i guess that's Ooh. our focus here on psychomedy 
But there's many other topics covered on the psychology of comedy. So I want to cover a, a few others, if I may. So starting with sense of humour. Um, so various theories as to why humour has evolved in humans and maybe other animals too. Mm. Well, um, laughter, certainly. Maybe not humour. Yeah. But yeah, playfulness, yeah. In terms of humour evolving, there was um, yeah a couple of bits of things I haven't really thought about in terms because there's not many books on the psychology of comedy and how humour has evolved. Ooh. You know, can you can you touch upon that? Just yeah, sense of humour is very difficult to to define, but you know, if someone says you don't have it, then it's you, you're cast with the, you know, the spot of damnation and um, <laughs> and unpleasantness. And so it is a really harsh thing to, to yeah. say, isn't it? And yeah. And as you, you talk about in your book, sense of humour is the number one thing that people are looking mm. for in, you know, um, well, the difference between the sexes, but, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's I mean, laugh, laughter is present in lots of species and there are various theories as to why, you know, we laugh and why we laugh at the things that we do. I mean, humour is sort of slightly different because it's the more cognitive, intellectual um, uh, generator of laughter, isn't it, in a way? And mm. In terms of the production of humour, and there are some evolutionary theories, but they tend to focus mainly on sex differences because um, the sexes tend to produce and respond to laughter, uh, to comedy, not laughter, tend to respond to comedy sort of slightly differently. And there's one theory called the mental fitness theory, which is thought to explain why men, for example, in Lonely Hearts adverts, more often say they have a sense of humour than do women. Um, and they see this as being, you know, a feature of themselves that attracts themselves to, to a mate. Whereas women are more likely to want somebody with a sense of humour and are less likely to, you know, to say that they themselves have a sense of humour. Mm. It's called mental fitness because it's thought to be one of the features um, that men in particular use in order to, and forgive the terminology, but this is how evolutionary psychologists speak, um, attract a mate. So it's all part of, you know, the, the, the playful dance charade of, of sexual attraction and the, the, the drama and the theatre around sort of sexual attraction. There is, however, um, if you set aside uh, sex and the sex is, and, and why not, there is um, a lot of evidence to suggest that um, intelligence and having a sense of humour or the ability to produce humour Mm. Um, are, are very closely linked. There's a lot of correlation research suggesting that, you know, the more verbally intelligent you are, the more likely it is that you're, uh, <laughs> to produce humour, and the more likely uh, you are to produce humour, the more likely it is that um, you score highly on uh, tests of IQ more generally, but specifically verbal IQ. Um, so there is, you know, that link there, which may... Yes, I, I did. Yes, I did read that in the book, and I, the, my immediate thought, can you guess my immediate thought? It was like, now it's explained why all the comedians come out of Oxford and Cambridge. That's, we, thought it was, we thought it was connections, but no, it's because they're more intelligent, they're more funny. I thought you were going to say, well, I always knew that, of course. You know. <laughs> I mean, there's something in that, isn't there? It's sort of like there are, there's a lot of talk on it about diversity in comedy, mm. but not a lot of talk in terms of diversity in which university you went to, or you didn't go to university really, mm. and working class, there's not a lot of diversity in comedy on television, certainly in terms of those backgrounds. But what you're saying here is there is some research to suggest that actually there is some connection between your level of intelligence and your level of humour. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's class-related because, you know, you can be whatever class it is. Uh, yeah, you I don't mean class, really. I mean... No, I know what you mean, though. Intelligence. But you, you mentioned class. There's actually very little looking at 
socioeconomic status and you know humor production actually or, or your humor preference mm. um, I mean the focus has been largely on men and women different nations different cultures um, and also age as well you know how children develop you know a sense of humor as they grow up mm. very little on the the sort of environment in which you grew up and sort of just looping back to one of the early things you said about you know growing up in environments and you mentioned a lot of the comedians had these you know horrendous you know sort of latchkey experiences when they were growing up mm. not very pleasant uh, again there's very little research actual research on this apart from one study that I was reading about recently which didn't go in the book because it was too late for the book uh, which compared um, sort of about 30 odd professional comedians childhood parental support and background with those of a control group and found actually no difference between them mm. I mean the the families were just as warm just as protective the only difference between them growing up was the comedians tended to use humor more during adolescence you know they became the class clowns whereas the control group who didn't become professional comedians um, didn't yeah well if you've got a spare three weeks you can listen to every episode of psychomedy and uh, maybe there's another book in uh, in that so i Still, give you permission we'll have to do a research project Nathan. well absolutely we'll have to get some funding to do something there's really a lot exciting. of there's a lot of research that has already been done in those 200 episodes yeah. my goodness but in terms of humor you, you talk you discuss four types of humor in the book um affiliate self-enhancing mm. aggressive self-defeating and you explore differences between uh, affiliate humour and aggressive disparagement humour and how mm. these may affect those that the jokes are told to, but the comedians themselves, this is of interest as well. So there's a lot of talk around kind of disparagement humour versus more inclusive humour always and never, you know, ever more so as the years go on, you know, talking about cancellation and these kinds of things. Mm. A lot of talk at the moment about Dave Chappelle's Netflix yeah. special, The Close. I don't know whether you've seen that. Yeah. I don't know that you're a fan of Dave so a lot of kind of talk about punching down things that were kind of obviously a lot more common back in the 70s and uh, 80s in terms of humor and far far less now so you, you cover some research in the book I'm testing your memory of the book perhaps but uh, there's a very specific point but you cover some research in the book as to why we may inherently like this kind of humour. And I know uh, in comedy clubs, people do still laugh at these kind of things. And the laughs you sometimes get are much deeper than the laughs you get about, you know, maybe more simple observational stuff. So you do cover some re research into that or, in the, or certainly some theories as to why we might inherently like disparagement humour. I was really interested in that in mm. the book. The main theorist that proposed this was Thomas Hobbes. And Hobbes had this phrase called the sudden glory. And the sudden glory came from the fact that we were laughing at something and we suddenly realised how better we were than the people we were laughing at. <laughs> Hence, the sudden glory, you know, that, that refreshing feeling of, well, I'm, you know, significantly better than, <laughs> than, than you are. I mean, it's a very bleak, cactopian view of human nature, uh, that, but it's, it's, it's there. And uh, there's a theme that runs through comedy, whether it's done benignly or malignly. I mean, there's a, there's a wonderful word for it called pathonic, which is the word used for like um, aggressive, unpleasant humour, disparagement humour. Mm. Um, and it, it's, it's there. Is there any link between watching disparagement humour and, and reinforcing beliefs? And also you mentioned mm. in the book, I think, that various studies 
showing our happiness. Uh, again, coming back to the psychology of a comedian, mm. happiness is positively correlated with uh, affiliative, self-enhancing humour styles yeah. rather than this kind of disparagement humour. So I'm just going back mentally over the psychomedy episodes, wondering who was the happiest of the comedians. <laughs> I think generally if you're constantly dark humour, constantly looking for those kind of subjects, you know, I think your natural assumption would be these would be the less happy people. Yeah, you know, I, th I think I it, it depends on whether that's an act or whether they genuinely yeah. believe it, of course, and that sometimes there's no way of knowing. I mean, I was always struck when um, something Ricky Gervais said, and Ricky Gervais is an interesting one because, I mean, the, the act is a lot of his, so a nod and a wink, but it's disparagement humour because he has a, you know, he... I very much so, yeah. Yeah, he has a go at lots of different groups in a sort of knowing way, and you think, well... Yeah. Does he mean this or... And as he says he in his show, he can get away with stuff exactly. that other people actually can't now. A lot of people will be cancelled for it yeah. just because of his fame. And the reason I touched on Ricky Gervais is something you just said about the happiness thing. Because I remember he, when he did his, tele, uh, his radio show on um, XFM with Steve Merchant and Carl Bilkington, uh, they were talking about you know how depressed they were getting up. And I distinctly remember him saying, I'm like squiddly diddly me. I get up and I can't wait to get up out of bed in the morning. <laughs> I thought, that, that, that's obscene. What do you mean you can't wait to get up out of bed in the morning? Um, whereas the comedy, of course, is quite dark and, you know, quite acerbic and, and quite cutting. So you mentioned if you were exposed to some disparagement humour, would you be more likely to maybe hate more the, the object of that yeah. humour? There's a bit of research on this, actually, in the domain of sexism. So if, for example, you take a group of people, it's usually men, um, who are dispositionally sexist, that is, you give them a load of questionnaires to measure their sexism, and they score very highly on sexist attitudes, what you find is that if you uh, then expose them to sexist humour, they are more likely to express negative views towards women after that. And the way in which this has been tested is you ask them things like, would you be prepared to give money to this uh, women's charity? And that's one of the, uh, you know, one of the experiments that was that was done. Mm. Uh, if you are dispositionally sexist, and you're exposed to material that reinforces that sexism, or makes fun of it, thereby reinforcing that that view, then you're more likely to express practically negative views uh, against that group um, afterwards. So there's a little. I mean, the evidence is a little bit mixed, and there's not much of it. But it's mm. interesting that um, a lot of the focus has been on sexism because that's something you can you know, relatively easily control in a sort of experimental setting. Mm. Yeah, so there's that. I mean, the other link with disparage, well, aggressive, we talk about disparagement humour as a theory, and then there's one of the humour styles, which is aggressive humour. Mm. And we know that um, loads of studies have shown this link between aggressive humour and psychopathy, yeah. uh, for example. And psychopathy is, uh, well, it's now known as one of the, um, the dark tetrad, it used to be called the Dark Triad, which is uh, an idea that Paulus and Williams came up with in 2002. And the Dark Triad is a set of three personality characteristics that sum up our darkest natures. So there's Machiavellianism, there's narcissism, and then there's psychopathy. So Machiavellianism is being very cynical, very manipulative, very deceitful. Uh, narcissism is having an exaggerated and utterly unrealistic belief in your own self-worth. Um, and your own ability, and psychopathy is a personality trait that's characterised by extreme lack of remorse, egocentricity, lack of empathy, 
and also manipulativeness and antisocial behaviour. So originally it was the dark triad, those three, and then another one was added to make it the tetrad, which is sadism, you know, which is taking pleasure in the uh, misfortune and harm uh, done to, to others. So there is this link between people who express aggressive humour um, mm. tend also to score high on measures of psychopathy. Um, we know that people who score high on aggressive measures of humour are also more likely to express more um, unpleasant attitudes, like they're more racist, they're more, uh, they express more immoral attitudes, they're more likely to commit transgressions, and they're more likely to cheat uh, as well. Again, not very, the thing about all of this is there's not very much literature, so what we have yeah. to go on is, you know, what's there, and you, you need that to be replicated so that we know it's an actual finding as opposed to a false positive. Yeah. But what's there seems to suggest this, but there's definitely this correlation between um, psychopathic behaviour, yeah. which is different to antisocial personality disorder, uh, as you know, as a good psychology graduate. Yeah. Um, and well, again, um, we've we've covered this. Humor. We've covered this quite a lot on on mm. psychomedy. You know, Harvey Kleckley's psychopathic mm. scale and talking about psychopathy and um, these kind of traits in comedians. So I think that yeah, that's a good a good point to jump into the psychology of a comedian. Maybe mm. as a link between humour. I was uh, thinking when I was. Uh, Thinking about this interview, do comedians have a good sense of humour? I think that's a quite a good, uh, quite a good question <laughs> to ask ourselves after two hundred episodes of psychomedy, because it's not a simple answer. You know, the sense of humour definition. I think in your book, you tell jokes, you find things funny. Mm. Uh, sense of humour about yourself, and I think a comedian possibly is maybe one of those things. They can tell jokes, but maybe not in terms of finding things funny and a and a sense of humour about themselves. A lot of comedians are very serious people and not yeah. as funny as your mate down the pub. But yeah, that's a link into, I guess, the, the psychology of a comedian versus a, <clears throat> versus a non-comedian. I mean, there'll be lots of comedians, and I wonder whether we can go back to what we talked about at the start here. There'll be lots of non-professional comedians that are not professional comedians, but they are very, very funny people. They haven't mm. taken the leap for other reasons than their psychology, obviously, their opportunities, their whatever it was, where they live. You know, a lot of comedians live in London or Manchester. If you're living in the Outer Hebrides, you're not probably going to be a professional comedian. I'm sorry, but the circuit is not great up there. How you know? did you know I lived in the Outer Hebrides? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, maybe may linking to your own story, but it's, it's, it's interesting in terms of something about the comedian that takes that leap. And you forget when people say, oh, that's a very brave thing to do. And you kind of, I instantly dismiss that. It's like how ridiculous, you know, in terms of, but you forget that first leap that you have to make in front of an yeah. audience. And it, I think, for what I've read of a lot of professional comedians, very few of them say, this is what I want to do with my life, and this is what I'm going to do. I mean, the one, the best example of that is Jimmy Carr, mm. who knew from the moment that he had this dispiriting job as a marketing manager at Shell, that's not what he wanted to do. And he gave it up, spent his redundancy uh, over a course of a year, living with his parents, honing his comedy craft and skill, because that's all he wanted to do. I was but, there with him at the time, doing, were those, you? doing those same gigs. Oh, yeah, wow. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, I know. Michael McIntyre is, is, is another one, you know. And, but then he, that he, was the same time. That was the same time. We were all open spotting. Indeed. Him. But then yeah. you think of Billy Connolly, who is the more the raconteur folk comedy um, comedian, like Jasper Carrot and Mike Harding. Yeah. It's odd that they seem like what you might call the more natural comedians because they're more anecdotal. I mean, they're storytellers yeah. you know, rather than joke tellers, aren't they? Which yeah. goes back to what you're saying about 
well, at what point then does that become professional rather than amateur? Yeah. Because pubs up and down the country and workplaces up and down the country are full of these people who can do that sort of stuff, but they don't take the plunge. Yeah. So, I, so you think, well, what is it that makes you take the, the plunge? Yeah. And I, like, I, I liked you mentioning, there was this sentence in the book where yeah. you work yourself into a position where you get an enormous amount of... Money. Yeah, money. <laughs> Let's hope so. You can get an enormous, enormous amount of disapproval, but it's worth the risk. So Ooh. that's about you know taking the leap, isn't it? That's, yeah. It's worth the risk to get that level of, that potential level of disapproval, which we all get. Yeah. This is where it becomes interesting because there's a disparity between the literature and then comedians' own recollections. Mm. And you know, as, as a psychologist, you know, you, you're warned against the use of anecdotes as data. You know, the plural of anecdote, as James O'Brien says, is not, you know, anecdata. But it's, it's astonishing how often in comedians' biographies, what comes out to me is two things. That, that doesn't come out in the literature. And I think it's because the literature doesn't look at this, these things. And the two things are, you mentioned disapproval, but approval seems to be one of the, the key motivators. And also a feeling of control. So comedians will do what they do, one, because they want to feel wanted and liked, Hence the laughter. You know, oh. if somebody laughs at what you're, you're saying, it's an immediate sense of approval. You know, it's not like acting and it's not like welding. You know, if you do a nice bit of welding, you know, people don't say, oh, <laughs> it's fabulous. <laughs> you know, it says, oh, job done, move on to the next panel. Um, and the, the other one thing is that feeling of control, because a, a lot of comedians talk about comedy gives them control over not just their own thoughts and feelings, but other people's thoughts and feelings as well. Mm. I know um, Sarah Silberman talks about this, and Roseanne Barr talks about this. Yeah. And Ro Roseanne Barr, you know, talking of using humour to control people, she literally used to use humour to control her father. I mean, she'd said, she used to say, I, I used to use my comedy to try and disarm people, literally, because if I didn't use comedy, my father would beat me. So, you know, for, I mean, that's an extreme, but for her, it was using humour in order to control individuals, you know, at, at a at very, very, um, you know, in a very unpleasant way. Mm. Um, so those two things, I think, come out in, you know, biographies of comedians. But when you look at the literature on the psychology of comedians, the psychology stuff doesn't look at those necessarily. They look at, um, you know, the standard personality factors, which you'll be aware of them, but they're, you know, the, the ocean personality traits, which is openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, neuroticism, and agreeableness. And there's, again, there's a small cottage industry of research looking at personality traits and comedians. Again, not much. I mean, you're talking about the dozen studies at most, mm. um, but they're well, they're well Designed ones, by and large. Um, a lot of the research on comedians used to be um, people interviewing comedians and then writing them up and interpreting them in some sort of Jungian or you know quasi psychoanalytic way, which is, you know, that's your your bag. What the studies have looked at is because um, you mentioned to me, I think a little bit earlier, that there's very little research on amateurs versus professionals. Mm. Um, but in the book, uh, page 76, um, there is one study that, well, there are three studies that have looked at professionals and amateurs, one of which is in the book, uh, which has found no difference between professional and amateur comedians in terms of these five personality traits. But they do find differences between those two groups, the comedians, and a control group 
who are not comedians, who yep. may just be actors. And what you tend to find, well, I say what you tend to find, because there, there aren't that many studies, so take this for what it's worth, but you tend to find that in these studies that comedians tend to show more openness to experience, which it seems pretty reasonable and pretty logical, but they also show uh, less conscientiousness, less agreeableness, and less extroversion, interestingly. Mm. Um, and in one of these studies, um, the professional comedians compared to the amateur comedians also demonstrated more neuroticism, which I thought was interesting because that, you know, that seems to contradict the, the other study. The one type of comedian, and maybe that's not the right word, that doesn't show this pattern is comedy writers. Comedy writers tend to show more extroversion, more openness to experience, more agreeableness and more conscientiousness uh. than, than do any other group. But the, the conscientiousness one comes through, I think, in most of the studies that if you look at professional comedians versus a control group, the professional comedians score uh, less highly on this trait of conscientiousness. Now, they may, you could speculate why uh, this could be, you know, conscientiousness is about behaving in a non-transgressive, very moral, very orderly way, which you could say is the very opposite of stand-up, because often stand-up is very confrontational. You're pointing mm. out, you know, inconsistencies and things that you see in life, in people. It is, it is obviously, you know, one of the main things we've, we've tried to draw out over the 200 episodes of Psychomedy. And yeah, I would, I would fully expect there to be a difference between pro between the group, including mm. pro and amateur comedians, and the non-comedian, because the difference between an amateur and a pro comedian is sometimes very small. It's not like they are incredibly better than the, uh, the pro is uh, incredibly much better than the amateur. It's opportunity, it's, uh, it's often networks, connections, going back to Cambridge, it is mm. often connections which, which get you onto the next level. And it's different types of humor that are in fashion at the moment, you know, so, but in terms of that personality of the, the, the pro and amateur comedians, I mean, obviously I've known these people for 15, 20 years. I am one of these people. I've talked in great depth in terms of the psychology of these people. And we have mentioned psychopathy and Harvey Kleckley's kind of scale and mm. uh, the 16 factors there, which we've talked about previously. And also we've covered a lot of comedians' issues on this. You know, a lot of comedians have depression, bipolar, OCD, and that doesn't differentiate them, of course, from the non-comedians. But, you know, when I'm thinking of comedians and myself, I do absolutely see a difference between comedians and other people. And it's not one thing. It's uh, a number of the things we've talked about. It's a number of the words you've used. I think when non-comedians think about comedians they're, and they're thinking about, well, what's made them a comedian? Sometimes, often they'll say, well, it's pain. It's come from pain in the past. And I think that is, that is one of the things, and that's one of the things that link us all. You mentioning your mother constantly making you laugh. It immediately hit me as like, ah, that's why you're not. <laughs> that's why you haven't gone into being a professional comedian. If only Ooh. your mother had been harsher <laughs> to you, and as some mothers and fathers have in this 
Um, I believe um, that she made me write funny things. See, that was the thing that started. <laughs> but did she stand over you saying you're not good enough, Neil? No, but, but then you get people who are not comedians who have that background. Absolutely. Who don't become comedians. Of course. And I think that the danger with this is, you know, you what you do is you underutilize base rate information. Yeah. So although you're right, I mean, a lot of comedians have this in their, their background, but then a great many don't. And the key thing is, I think, to get the data on that, actually, yeah. to, to do a proper analysis of this so we move away from the anecdote you know to some really good data maybe you know this is something we could actually do you know to together harnessing yep. our psychological potential and our comedy ness um, indeed and then there's a then there's something of real interest to me there which is there is a difference i think and there isn't a word for it and whatever mm. word i use i'll be criticized for it but a true comedian a comedian that really couldn't be anything else mm and a comedian so there is a difference mm. and maybe maybe that's a difference between a the professional comedians and the greats i mean I'm, yeah. robin williams is, a, is an obvious example that you couldn't mm. think of robin williams doing anything else you know you could think of a lot of comedians who are maybe doing comedy and they could equally be very very good managers in banks and that's not picking on managers in banks because i was uh, a manager in a bank but i was desperately unhappy uh, in my years doing well, that a, after university well, a funny manager in a bank. <laughs> well no i've I never just... met a funny man in a bank or a woman i was just trying to get some Should money to together all i wanted to do was comedy from childhood and i've talked about this um yeah. that my reasons for getting into comedy i think i associated love with getting laughter from a very early age right. i didn't get um, maybe the love that you did, the, the kind of maybe mm. more overt, I love you from parents. I got love from every time they laughed, I felt loved. So this is, you know, that's my story and one, well, of, the, one know, of the reasons. You that say I, that I, I, I don't think that's the interpretation with me. It wasn't the love. To me, it was the sense of danger. Mm. It was being able to say and do these things that actually were a little bit wrong. Mm. You know, and it, it comes back, I suppose, to the, the suspension thing and all the rest of it. And I think that sense of dangering comedy is what sets it apart from other, you know, um, acts of creation. Mm. You know, I mean, T Terry Jones had this wonderful thing about comedy where he said, you know, everybody hates bad comedy. I mean, they get angry about bad <laughs> comedy. They don't get angry about bad tragedy. As I say, there is that difference. You mentioning Jimmy Carr there, and mm. you know, I knew Jimmy Carr at the time, and he was always the example of someone that would do this, uh, I mean, he, yeah, he did have some redundancy from that oil company, he did have the opportunity to do this, but yeah, I didn't know he moved back in with his parents, actually, but... Yeah. Um, and of course, his with... relationship with his dad was not great. Right, yeah. I mean, I mean you, you know, in his autobiography, he, he doesn't mention his father at all. That was a very estranged relationship. Yeah. The relationship with his mum was, was great. But, yeah. um, but it, that, but, but just quickly, that, yeah. that notwithstanding, the... Mm. The, the drive of Jimmy, the, the, the driving around the country, doing one or two gigs every single night, um, the work that it involves, mm. it's something I do. I work a hell of a lot on comedy. It's all, it's all I want to do. I, yeah. I, I saw that in Jimmy at the time. And do you, the people do you that, see there's like an apprenticeship or do you think you've moved on from that now? I mean, is it a way of, sort of keeping yourself trained and skilled? Or at this point, do you think, well, now I'm doing this as a job. So I'm not an apprentice anymore. This is my job, so I'll keep doing what I'm doing because I'm good at it. I think, uh, in terms of my my story on that, it's um, I think when I, I I work with other comedians sometimes, and I say to them at the start, 
um, if I'm directing or helping them with their writing, I say, I only want to work with you if you got the same view of comedy as me and the same work ethic, yeah. which is, it's your whole life. You know, I've got kids, so it's not my whole life, but it's, 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 it's that all encompassing. It's what, you know, it's, it's, it's what Jimmy Carr had. It's that drive. You know, I do music as well. And I think comedy is, is a lot like music that if you don't do it every day, if you don't dedicate your life to it, you're not going to be great at it. Mm. And if you have a few days off, you take a backward step. It's practice, isn't it? It's Use there. It it's it. there in me. And I'm not calling myself in the same bracket as, you know, the great comedians. But I think there is a difference in psychology mm. with somebody that wants to be. I want to be a great comedian. Some people are satisfied with they want to do stand up because then they want to get into TV. They want to get into TV presenting. Mm. They want to get money from TV. And that's never that's never interested me at all. I want to be a great comedian. I want to be regarded in the same breath as the great comedians. That's all that drives me. That's all that drove Jimmy Carr, I'm sure, because he still goes out. He's the hard, one of the hardest working live mm. stand-up comedians. It drives him. He's got enough money that he can just live off, you know, because he doesn't pay any tax, of course. Um, but um, <laughs> I'm sorry, Jimmy. I haven't seen him for years. Um, we know for a man that has, what you might call, idiosyncratic approaches to tax avoidance stroke evasion. It was interesting in his book, he was saying that he was petrified of money for a man who sort of gave up a very wealthy job. I mean, he had a company car, BMW and everything. But in his book, I thought it was an interesting way he said that even with houses, he has never had a mortgage on a house. I, I, he wasn't boasting. He was saying he didn't want to be tied down with that debt. You know, so he, mm. he would save up to buy every house that he had, which is sort of the opposite of Michael McIntyre, mm. who in his book recounts you know, the horrendous experiences he had in actually trying to buy um, you know, a property in North London while you know, he was starting out. Um, yeah. You know, you talk about great comedians. Michael McIntyre is an interesting one because it shows you how serendipity could help. Because, you know, if it wasn't for that role variety performance, of course, yeah, he did. I mean, that kick-started Michael McIntyre's career, didn't but it? But I, I would say there's a difference knowing them both yeah. from those early days. I think there's a, they're both great comedians. Um, but they're dedicated to though. Yeah, but th there's a difference in their psychology. I think in terms mm. of Michael, Jimmy, I think um, would be out every night of the week, and he is out most, most nights of the week doing live comedy, uh, still with his incredible TV career. Michael, he does a lot less. He mm. does those big arena tours. He gets it all over and done with in a month, doesn't he? He just uh, mops it all up in a mm. month. Um, and so there is, I'm sure there is a difference in, in their psychology, their backgrounds. I haven't had either of them on this. But in terms of that drive, that... Um, all the things, all the things we mentioned, you know, those five traits, the, the, what Harvey Cleckley talked about in that psycho, psychopathy scale, all of these things filter into, I think, the personality of a great comedian, stroke a comedian that just wants to do comedy, gets his joy from comedy because it is something, whether it's from their past or from their present, something that drives them to go around, uh, you know, doing this job which in its early stages is not a which is not a fun high-paid job to do in its simple terms but it's never simple of course because there's lots of things that drive someone to be a comedian but in in my simplistic view it's a me associating love with laughter mm. you want to be loved 
And so I constantly, every day, want to be loved, I guess, mm. uh, if I'm being honest with myself, by, a, by an audience. And that's what drives me to do comedy. I want to do comedy every day. It's my, it's my love, it's my passion. And there are a lot of comedians like me who I would class as the true comedians who want to just do comedy. Stand-up is their love. Yeah. And they want to get a career out of stand-up. And anything that comes out of the back of this, TV and whatever, is a bonus rather than actually what they want to do. It's what Stephen Colbert called sizzling bacon. There's yeah. nothing quite like an audience laughing. He said it's like sizzling bacon. Yeah. Because what they do is they approve of you. I.e. Yeah. they give you love, which goes back to what we talked about earlier. You know, approval and control, isn't it? Yeah. And it doesn't make me... I never get off stage with any particular high. It just, if mm. I don't do it, I get low. It's depressing, really, isn't it? <laughs> So do you, do you, do you, do I'd rather be sitting in a sharp seat. Well, do you feel like you have these with... with <laughs> <laughs> seemingly a lot happier. my suit as if I'd ever do anything funny. <laughs> seemingly a lot happier than me. <laughs> no, but there is, a, there is a difference, isn't there? As you say, going back to affiliate humour versus disparagement humour, talking about comedians, non-comedians, there's, there's different personalities and there's differences in happiness, I think, comedians and, and non-comedians. You know, Comedians, generally, we've had 200 on. I'm trying to think of the happy ones, you know. Mm. But what you have with those, you've got the window when they're with you. Mm. Right? And of course, I mean, that snapshot, you know, as a psychologist would be insufficient for you. But what I think is interesting is the observation, because there are ways in which you could study that systematically. Mm. And I think if you did that, you know, rather than what, I mean, just, just to leap again, it's a bit of a tangent, but it's not in a way, going back to one of those studies I mentioned on personality, um, one of them looked at differences between professionals and amateurs and they found there was very little difference between them. But what was interesting was that when the comedians showed these differences in personality compared to controls, on stage they didn't exhibit those traits. Mm. So it's as if they can manipulate the on-stage persona, which is what they were doing with, with you, because you are doing, this is, this is performance. Yeah. You know, even here, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm... I'm in a sense, this is a performance because I'm trying to make this interesting for you, talking about things I know about. Yeah. But it's, you know, and we've, we've only just met. I mean, you know, so there's an element of performance and it's getting beyond that performance to what is actually at the core of their behaviours, what you can do systematically, but you may not be able to get it from those sort of, you know, brief snapshots. Yeah, I'm wondering how to bring this all together at the end of our discussion here. And I think there is something sticking out for me in terms of your background, as I say, as I touched upon at the start, the background of many comedians recording comedy and uh, not the background of many comedians in terms of their mother being funny rather than being a source of pain for them. Um, but there are many things about your past that suggest this guy is going to be a comedian uh, and your passion for comedy. Um, as I say, you have far more passion than a lot of the comedians I've talked to, surely someone like you would be a great comedian because you're very passionate about comedy, you love comedy, you wrote comedy, you submitted sketches. And then your career diverted for one reason or another, as you say, going into more academia. As I say, I think a research project will be good because I, I, you know, I think mm. there's two people sitting on the sofa here with very similar backgrounds, very similar love of comedy, all the comedy you talk about, like not the nine o'clock news, absolutely stands out for me. And then there's that divergence where I've got something within me and I think a lot of comedians have got things inside them which you potentially don't have, which are not happy things, which are things that drive you instead of thinking, 
well, I wanted going to this because this would be more interesting. This would be more stable. Mm. This would be, this would make me a happier person, which most people go into. <laughs> Did you say happier? Have you ever worked <laughs> in academia, Nathan? Well, I think comedians are going, <laughs> down, it's, it's going like, down a route. I see them now. It's like Dante's Inferno sometimes. <laughs> but you're, what you're not doing mm. at 21, 22, 23 mm. is doing what a lot of comedians do, which is going to a career with virtually no chance of success, mm. with um, a great chance of getting constant disapproval. Yeah. And it is a different mindset that takes you down. And that's the point of divergence for me. As I say, there's a difference between a true, you know, what I would say, a true comedian who is going to do what Jimmy Carr did and absolutely slog it and whatever it takes. Whereas someone maybe with connections who just wants to go into TV and he's just using it as a, has got money and maybe, mm. you know, there is a personality and a psychology, I believe, that takes you down that darker road. Well, I think what comes across in that, actually, is something I've not thought about. Well, I've thought about it before, but the, the literature hasn't. And that is courage and bravery, because it's, I mean, this is one of the branches of the performing arts that really makes you vulnerable. Mm. And it takes a really courageous and brave person to make yourself that vulnerable on stage in many ways. Well, not just in terms of what you say, which may be personal or autobiographical, but also in terms of the possible rejection that you put yourself up for mm. if you're not any good, or even not just any good, you have a bad audience. And you know the audience doesn't respond and doesn't give you what you said earlier about the, the love or approval. Really illuminating what you just said there in terms of courageous, brave, taking that leap, getting, putting yourself out for that disapproval. Because I would argue slightly against that mm. in terms of my personality and my background and a lot of comedians who I would say, again, this horrible phrase, like a true comedian, I never think of it as courageous or brave because it's almost like I don't have the choice. This is all I want to do. So and it's I dispositional. Don't... It's like second nature to you. Well, I don't care. I don't yeah. care well, if, they don't, like, if yeah. they don't like me. Yeah. I don't care if I want them to like me. Yeah. But if they don't like me, that won't. a bad review won't stop me mm. from doing it. But you still say that you want the love. Yeah, absolutely. So if you don't get that reinforcement and it's rejection, how do you square that with that view? Well, the love and the the love and the rejection never change my mood. It's a strange thing, as I say. If I don't do it and I don't mm. get the love, then I miss it. If I do do it, obviously I want it to go well. But if it goes very well or very badly, I still get up tomorrow and want to do it again. Mm. And with your best gig, can you remember what were the elements of that gig that really made you come off stage and thought that was a great gig and I do feel good about it? I have great gigs all the time, and it is a weird fit. It, 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 yeah, what? No, 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 Nathan, don't put yourself down, man. <laughs> yeah, what was one of those psychopathy scales? Like no, <laughs> narcissism? Narcissism, and... yeah. We're going to, no, the, what I mean... we're going to the dark tetras. Yeah. What I mean by We've that is... We've had the socks with the sadism, so thanks for that, mate. I don't, I don't mean that at all. I mean... But you I can say, after working in comedy now for 84 years... Yes, your producer will cut that out, don't worry. You'll come across as being a, a very fragrant individual. <laughs> I have great gigs, but it doesn't, really, it doesn't really do anything particularly for my... So why do you do it? Unless it's the money. Yeah. See, well, there that, must be something... The answer's that... in the personality. The answer's in the brain. The answer's in the psychology. The answer's in my past. And the answer's all in the brain, I think. But your past, you said, was because of the need for love that you didn't get. That's then, one of the elements. I don't, but then you say that, well, if I don't get the love, I'm not particularly bothered. No, so, but if I don't do it, then I don't get the love, and then I am low. 
So it is that. Right. So there is that link. Mm -hmm. um, but what I'm saying is I sometimes and often come drive home from a great gig because I've got my kids at home Ooh. on their own <laughs> often and I've just got to get home after a great gig and it is a weird old life having a great gig um, very regularly, as I said, Neil, yeah. almost every time. What would you have done if you weren't doing comedy? And do you think you'd have been happy at it? Or do you think there would always be this thing niggling away at you thinking, this is what I want to do? Well, no, as I say, ever since I was 10, I've been writing comedy, performing comedy at school, mm. through university. I came to London and did a job uh, to get money because there's not a lot of money in comedy. If you're going to be in London, if you're not going to be living with your parents, you need money. Um, there's a lot of comedians working away with no money, living with their parents, and that's just a life that I couldn't have. I didn't want to live in Birmingham, let's face it. I had to move to London. Um, but whatever I'd be doing, I'd be doing this at least on the side because it's all that drives me. It's all I want to do, and mm. I don't want to get... Uh, fame doesn't drive me, money doesn't drive me. It's just standing in front of an audience and making them laugh. Mm. That's the only thing that drives me, and it's, a, it's stupid really, isn't it? This has turned into a bit of a therapy session for me, but it's been lovely because... Um, well, once a psychologist. It's nice talking to a psychologist. And uh, maybe I need more therapy. I think that's, the, uh, I think that's my conclusion from today. You need more science, Nathan. Um, indeed. But, um, yes, Neil, thank you so much. Well, uh, so great to have you on Psychomedy. Thank you. It's been an absolute joy and a pleasure. And, uh, yeah, we'll have to do it again sometime. The book is fascinating. It's, uh, yeah, available now. It's uh, what a, in in closing. It's nine ninety nine on Amazon. It's ebook. I don't know what that is. About seven ninety nine. But it's also oh. eighty five pounds ninety nine in hardback. That's what on earth Hang is on. that about? Hang. That's a bargain because it was. Uh, <laughs> brace yourself. One hundred and nineteen pounds. <laughs> now is that? Well, George, is this your the, narcissism setting you, the prices of this? Hang on, Neil, hang on. At home, going the hardback. Do you want me to tell you the really boring reason for this? Well, I'll tell you the boring. This is the last minute of the show. So this, okay. is, this is your closer. Now. Oh, I'll do this in twenty seconds. Okay. Uh, so publishers do two versions of books, especially academic publishers like Routledge. They do a paperback, which is like a trade version, which is what you've got, and then they do a hardback for libraries. And because they tend to be more durable, they tend to be more expensive. So I don't expect people to buy the hardback. <laughs> Although if you do, Christmas is coming, buy six. Um, but the paperback, as you say, is slightly cheaper. <laughs> and if you go to the Routledge site, I think you get 20% off. And I was, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit delighted because some very nice people have said some very nice things about it. Like David Quantic and Joel Morris, you know, who did screen wipe and paddington and the ladybird books and so on and richard wiseman so um i'm pleased it was meant to be a book on horror by the way but it turned out to be a book on the psychology of comedy so um, very similar to be honest enjoy <laughs> thank you well, thank you thank you so much for joining me on psychomedy so that is our show for today join us again soon for more psychomedy on apple Podcasts, spotify uk or wherever you get your podcasts if you liked it please give us a five-star review it helps other people to find us and only psychopaths leave three-star reviews psychomedy was written and presented by me nathan cassidy bsc in psychology produced and edited by mike hansen ba english for pop people productions theme music by mike as well so that's psychomedy please subscribe and rate and listen back on all the great episodes so far from seasons one and two and the lockdown daily dose specials they're listed in the video clips and more at psychomedy.co.uk and if you'd like to support the podcast for five pound a month and get loads of bonus uncut video and more please go to patreon.com slash nathan cassidy follow us on social media at pod people uk at psychomedy pod at nathan cassidy and at the neil martin thanks so much again neil thanks to everyone for all the support this year even while we've been away happy christmas let's all wish for a joyous and happy 2022 for us all i.e don't ever become a comedian Lots of love to you all and see you next time.
ball.